Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for Sunday mornings, for sunshine, for summer break. And thank you, God, that you have taught us that our soul feeds upon the truth of your word so that we know what it's like for our faith to be hungry or even starving or malnourished and yet to come back to you and say, God, we come to your word. We ask for you to feed us and teach us, God. That is where we are right now. So we're hungry and we're looking for your truth and we ask that you would teach us today that we would behold our Lord and Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 2. We're going to look at chapters 2 and 3 today. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 828 in that Black Pew Bible there in front of you. The Black Pew Bible, page 828, Hosea chapter 2 and 3. Now, last Sunday was Father's Day, so I got away from the book of Hosea. The Sunday before that, so two weeks ago, we started here in Hosea. And what we're going to do is we're going to now move forward. Like I said, it'll probably take us all the way to Christmas, but we're going to study the minor prophets. As far as I can tell, we have not done that here as a church in a really, really long time, if ever. I know that many of you are saying, I have never heard a sermon on the minor prophets. I don't even know what they're about. I've hardly ever read them. And so that's what we're going to do. But as I told you all also, that means that I've made my job a lot harder because it's a lot easier to preach from the Gospels than it is to preach from the Minor Prophets. But I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be good for us. You may not have remembered what I preached on last uh, two weeks ago, and so I want to recall that I used that to be an introduction to the, the Minor Prophets and an introduction to Hosea. But there's a few things I want to say. Um, when we are religious or churchgoers, or Christian people, or even saying that we are, or acting like it. We're constantly walking a really, really, really thin line, right? From being sincere, or, or genuine, or faithful to what God is like, or not. And what is really obvious to the world, to everybody, regardless of who you are, where you're from, is that God and whoever he is and wherever he is should be this awesome, big, good thing. And people that are saying they know him or love him or follow him or do this thing or do that thing because of him look really, really bad and really, really silly and really, really stupid when everybody knows that's not what God's like. You're, you're aware of that, right, church? When we think going to church is the answer, we've missed it. When we think giving or Praying or doing this or doing that is what makes us godly, we're missing it. When we think living in sinfulness is okay for whatever excuse we might offer, we're missing it. 
For God is awesome and big and holy and right and thorough and consistent and faithful. God is. And any time we are misrepresenting him, it should bother us because it bothers him. Well, the minor prophets and all of them are emphasizing this. God's people that he created, the people of Israel, are really, really going in the wrong direction. They have turned their back on God, and yet they still claim him at times. And what we're seeing in the Minor Prophets is God sending a man to be the voice of God to tell them how bad that is. So, what you need to know, and I've been saying this a lot lately, is that warnings are good for us in life. A speed limit's good for you. A law is good for you. These things are good for you. When God calls us out or rebukes us or tells us we're wrong or tells us that he's mad or tells us that he's disappointed, that's good for us. May we not be shallow enough or even fake enough to not be able to handle it. May we not ignore it or run from it or avoid it or dismiss it, but may we take it the way we should and respond to him with repentance, with I'm sorry, with God I turn back to you. May we not turn away from him. So that's what the prophets are about, calling God's people back to God, reminding them of the faithful God and how their unfaithfulness is really not a good, faithful, honest reflection of God. And so that's what these minor prophets are about. I reminded you all two weeks ago when I introduced all this that in the Old Testament you have these offices that God used to connect with his people. You had prophet, priest, and king. And the prophet is the person that God told what to say and they would go to the people, right? So God would tell Isaiah, Isaiah, here's what I want you to go tell the people. And Isaiah would go over and he would say, thus says the Lord. And he would tell them. That's what a prophet does. A prophet tells the people what God says. A priest goes the other direction. Okay, So the people come to the priest and they say, hey, we've sinned, we need forgiveness of our sins, can you go talk to God and get us forgiveness? And the priest says, okay, I'll do that. And then the priest, who could only be in that position by the way God had set up to be in that position, would go and do that. And so there was a priest. And then a king is one who reigns over the kingdom, the kingdom of God's people. And so the king was one uh, reigning over the people, hopefully in a good way like God does. But listen to me, folks. The role of the prophet was never complete. The role of the priest was never complete. And the role of the king was never complete. Sometimes they were good and sometimes they were bad, but every time they died and they didn't last. And I think that you know that. And you know why? Because God was wanting you and I to say, we need a better prophet. We need a better priest. We need a better king. You know who is all three of those wrapped up into one? You know who is ultimately and perfectly the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament things? Jesus Christ, God's son. He is the greater prophet than Moses. He is the ultimate priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the king after the son of David on the throne forever. 
He is forever our priest. We know God through him. He is forever, or he is forever our prophet. We know God through him. He is forever our priest. We can go to God anytime. That's why we don't need a priest now. That's why I am absolutely not a priest. I'm just a pastor to tell you what God's word says. Not a priest at all. And that is why he is our king forever. And whoever believes in God through Christ is in the kingdom of heaven already. The king of kings reigns in the heart of those who believe. Prophet, priest, and king. And that right there took me about five minutes. And if you'll just hold on to those three offices and get those, then you will really have a good starter kit on understanding the whole Old Testament. Because almost all of the Old Testament is dealing with prophets, priests, and kings. And none of those were absolutely right. None of those were the way they were supposed to be. And that's why they needed Jesus to come and totally make it all right. Well, Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. And if you weren't here two weeks ago, let me say this again. Not minor because they're at all any less. Minor just because they're shorter. We've got some majors because they're really long, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But then we've got these 12 minor prophets. That's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And they're just called minor because they're smaller. Some are really, really small, and some are a few chapters long. Hosea is one of the longer ones. But it's the same thing. They are prophets. God has told them to go tell the people something. And that's what Hosea is. I also said two weeks ago that Hosea parents is one that gets a little uh, PG-13 rated. And I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but he, he uses some big words. He uses some words that you may have to uh, explain when you get home. And, you know, the preacher's job is not necessarily to parent your kids. And so you can talk to them about that if they have any questions. But there are some big words that come up in Hosea, and we've already seen those. All right? But you can just explain it by faithfulness, okay? What faithfulness is and what unfaithfulness is. But as God's word has always intended to do, it might lead you to talking about some things in an honest way that you've been avoiding talking about in an honest way. If we need to explain unfaithfulness, then let's explain unfaithfulness. Okay? And this is what God is doing. Well, last week or two weeks ago, I gave you these three points. Number one, God often uses marriage to teach us. I showed you how he did that in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis. I showed you how he did that in the very end of the Bible, Revelation. I showed you how through the Psalms and the Proverbs, he's always talking about marriage. In the Old Testament, he talks about marriage. In the New Testament, he talks about marriage. In the Gospels, anywhere, really, he's talking about marriage. You can learn a lot about life through looking at marriage. That's not my point, that's God's point. And yet he's doing it again with Hosea. Number two, God sees our unfaithfulness. He sees our unfaithfulness, okay? You of all people should know that God sees every little thing. If I'm talking about something and I'm trying to make it look like I mean well, but in my heart I'm really trying to tear you down or or be divisive, God sees that. He knows every bit of it, right? If I'm hiding away in my my room somewhere and I'm doing some bad things and just making sure my kids don't see me, God sees every bit of that. If you dropped a $100 bill on the way out of church and I picked it up and pocketed it real quick and said I didn't see you drop it, I don't know what happened, I don't know what you're talking about, God sees every bit of that. We could go on and on. He sees all unfaithfulness. If my wife's not aware that I've been texting some other women, God sees it. 
You name unfaithfulness, God sees every bit of it. And folks, it's not worship to God if I'm living to be approved by you all. It's not worship to God if I'm living to be approved by my kids or my wives or my neighbors or my friends. It's worship to God when I'm living for God. And God sees every bit of unfaithfulness. Well, if that's the case, then we're all guilty for God sees everything and lays all of us, Hebrews says, naked and exposed before him. We are all guilty. As we read in our call to worship today, Psalm 53, God looks out and says, There is none who do good. All are guilty. We just read that this morning. And yet, we find ourselves in this situation of a reality of unfaithfulness all around us, all in our hearts. None of us are as faithful as we ought to be. None of us are as faithful as we ought to be in relationships. But certainly, none of us are as faithful as we ought to be to God. And so, what do we do? And what is the answer? Or rather, what is God going to do? And he tells us in Hosea that God is a redeemer of the unfaithful. He redeems the unfaithful. God's plan is to take a lost people and find them. God's plan is to take a people who are far and to bring them near. And that's what Hosea is all about. But he does that by constantly showing them how far away they are and then constantly saying how much God loves them and how he's going to bring them back. And then he does that by constantly showing us a marriage that pictures that. There's a lot of people today that say the Bible's not relevant. How more relevant can that get? How more relevant can you get than talking about a husband who has a, who has a wife and there's some unfaithfulness there and the love is, is stronger than the unfaithfulness? That's pretty relevant. And that's talking about marriage, no matter what year it is, and that's talking about God the way he is to us. It's outstanding. Y'all, God's smarter than us, higher than us, wiser than us. He knows what he's doing. His word will not fall short. His word will not let us down. If you and I will get eyes for the word of God and look to it and sit under it, you will not only feel, but you will experience God dealing with you, working with you, uplifting you, building you up, changing your life. You will. Because the word of God is that way. So today... I want to follow those same three points. I just want to put them in a little bit different order. I want to say, number one, God sees unfaithfulness. Number two, God redeems the unfaithful. And then lastly, God often uses marriage to teach us. So read with me at Hosea chapter 2. We're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 3 today. But we're going to go right now 1 through 13. Hosea chapter 2. Where my version uses that big W word, the Pew Bible or other translations just use promiscuous or unfaithful, all right? Chapter 2, say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, if you weren't here two weeks ago, that's interesting because God had just talked about these uh, promiscuous children that he had named, you are not my people and you don't have my mercy. He named the kids that because they were born out of promiscuity. But now he's saying, call them my people and call them mercy. You see the heart of God coming through already. Verse 2. 
Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. And she shall seek them but shall not find them. She shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who had lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bell. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the bells." When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry. And listen to this. And went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. This is God speaking through Hosea the prophet to his people Israel. This is not God talking about a specific marriage. This is not God talking about a literal, physical husband and wife right now. This is God speaking about his people through the mouth of the prophet. And it's pretty strong. And God is upset. God is angry with his people, as we just read, because they have abandoned him. They have turned their back on him. So let's see what it is that is bothering him so much. In the first three verses, he just says, they are unfaithful. He uses big words like whoring and adultery. He uses like they've been exposed and now he's going to have to put them in the wilderness and he's going to have to make him as the day that they were born. He's going to have to reset with them. He's going to have to break them down. But he has identified that they have been unfaithful. Let's just be honest. God tells us, that he loves us and we are to love him back. God tells us that he made him and we are to be loyal to him back. God tells us that he made us and brought us together, that we would worship him and he teaches us that in us glorying in him and us worshiping him that we are most satisfied, that we are most content. His holiness is our happiness. His sovereign rule, loving fatherhood over us. His kingdom that we can be in is what is best for us. And the Bible teaches us that from beginning to the end. But when we say, no, I don't think so. No, I disagree. Let me distance myself from that. It is not God who is wrong. It is us who are wrong. It's not God who has changed. It's us who've changed. It's not God who has moved. It's 
us who have moved. And it is not God who is being unfaithful. It's not God who's not holding up his end of the deal. It is us who are not holding up our end of the deal. And this is God saying, I see that. That's verses 1 through 3. But look what he says here in verses 4 and 5. And this is a big one. He immediately says that her children will be the same way. He will deal with her children in the same way. Now, remember, he's not talking about a wife with little kids. He's talking about a religious people and their kids. This is heavy. This is heavy. Show me a generation that fakes their Christianity. I'll show you the generation after them that doesn't want their Christianity. Show me a generation that just wants to go through the motions of church and I'll show you some children and grandchildren that don't want to go to their church. And look what God says in verse 4. Upon her children I also will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. This is some scary stuff. God is angry with them because they have been unfaithful to him. The faithful God has been dealt with by unfaithful people, and that's not right. He identifies their unfaithfulness, but now he says it will be the same with their children. Look at verse 5. Their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said... Well, we'll stop there, but the children are now influenced by this. Y'all, this was written a long, long time ago. But we're living in a day where it's exactly the same. Children, old children are influenced. They are influenced by us who do not take God seriously. They are influenced by those who are half-hearted with God. I preached last week about men who will come here and act like they pray but will go home and not pray. By men who will come here and be smiley and happy but at go home they'll be angry and mean. By men who will come here and will love young men but will go home and not love their children. We talked about that last week. That's the very formula of being unfaithful to God. I quoted to you last week from Tony Evans that the number one most thing you should be concerned about is your house and those who are in it. We have a picture here of God being upset with the children because of the mother's unfaithfulness. One through three, they're unfaithful. Four and five, that affects the children. Five B through eight, look here. Listen to what she says. She has the wrong perspective. This is what unfaithfulness looks like. Listen to what she says. I will go after my lovers. They gave me bread and they gave me water and they gave me wool and they gave me flax and my oil and my drink. She thinks that they're better at taking care of her than God. Remember, this is the people of Israel. This is the people of God saying, we're going to go into this lifestyle. We're going to go and live this way. God's way is not working out for us. God's not good. His ways aren't good. We're going to go and do this. It reminds me of about a thousand different episodes of when I was in high school of so many teenagers who would run away from home or not listen to their parents or sneak out at night. And when the parents would confront them, they would try to say that their boyfriend or that their girlfriend loves them more than even their parents do. We've all seen that episode a hundred times, right? We've seen that scene. I'm picturing a 16-year-old guy or girl who's screaming at his mom or dad who are telling them they should not go out at night. And they're saying, you don't love me. They love me. And you're like, what about those clothes you're wearing and that water you drank and that food you just ate and that bath you just took and that car that you're driving and that money that you're spending and everything else? Who loves you more? You could really boil all of that down to if you take the sexual act out of it, there would probably not even be any more love there. 
And here, the people of God are saying, I want to go back to my other lovers. They're the ones who provide for me and take care of me. They have the wrong perspective. Their eyes are so far away from God's provision over them that they don't even remember that. They are so focused on what they're going toward wrongfully that they can't even see the faithfulness that they're leaving. They're so focused on the unfaithfulness they're being drawn into that they can't see the faithfulness that they're leaving. This is what it says. Then you move on to verses 9 through 13, and God says, I will have to punish them. I will have to deal with this. We do not let this slide well, actually, let me show you what, he says, what, what she says in verse 7. I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Folks, if you ever decide that you need to leave God and go back to another way, listen to me. You're mistaken. You're not understanding God. You're not understanding his love and the Lord Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. You're not understanding eternal life. And I know at times life gets really, really low. And I know at times we get really, really hurt and let down. I understand that. But if you ever start thinking, I can do life better without God, or the grass is greener on this side without him, I'm going to go back to my, I can handle my life better, be reminded that you sound like the unfaithful people of God in Hosea, which God is about to teach them. Their perspective is wrong. But then in verses 9 through 13, here's what God says. He will punish them. Therefore, I will take back what I gave to you. I will take back all that. You see what he's taking back? I'll take back my grain. I'll take back my wine. I'll take back my wool. I'll take back my flax. Look what it was used for. God gave her that to cover her nakedness. She was so unfaithful. He even uses the word there in verse, in verse 2. The adultery between her breasts. She was so unfaithful and exposed that it was shameful and embarrassing and God had provided her things that could cover her and instead of in humility receiving, remember we're not talking about a woman, we're talking about the people of God, instead of receiving that and giving glory to God and resting in him, she thought it came from the other lovers and she's saying it was better with them. So God says, I'll take it all back. Hey guys, when we start shaking our fist at God, and we start saying that God's the problem, watch out, God might really become a problem. When we start thinking the loving, helping Father in heaven is a problem for us, he might actually become a problem for us. And what you see here in verses 9 through 13 is God saying, okay, I will deal with that. So then in verse 11, he brings up that when she's hanging out with them, she's caught up in all sorts of stuff. She's got a fake religion now. Verse 11, all of her mirth and her feasts and her new moons and her Sabbaths and her appointed feasts. He's talking about all these religious things that don't have God in them. He's talking about all the ways that these people of God are still comforting themselves by a false security. Well, I still do this and I still do that. And I'm still a good person because, hey, I do this and I go to this event and I go to this organization. I still keep this Sabbath and I still follow this feast and I'm still involved with that. And they've got all of this religious life that down at the core of it is unfaithfulness. Yes, they're still doing this and doing that and have a life full of what is a type of obedience, a self-righteousness. But God says, I'm about to show you all of that. Look at verse 13. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. Y'all, Baal, that B-A-A-L, is the name of the false gods of the pagan nations. And God says, I'm going to punish you now 
because you've been living for the false god. And then he says there at the end, verse 13, you went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. God sees unfaithfulness. You know, there's a temptation when you're a church or when you're really a Christian, but even when you're a preacher, to avoid these types of things, right? If you're like me, you've probably, you're sitting here going, man, did we even have to, do we even have to cover that part? But if you're like me, you also know that, man, I need to hear that sometimes. I need to hear that. There are times when I think God's way is not the best way. Humility, openness, honest, repentance, confession. I read an article this week by a, a young man who's about 30 years old. And he was writing about his godly dad. And he said at 30 years old, the number one way that I'm still being impacted by my dad, the way he raised me, is how often he set me down and said, son, I was wrong and I need your forgiveness. He said at 30 years old, if you asked him what's the number one way that your dad raised you and what impacted you most, he said it was how often my dad set me down and said, son, I was wrong and I need your forgiveness. He went on to say that has propelled him into a life of being able to admit when he's wrong, being able to turn to God and say, I'm wrong, being able to say, I'm failing, being able to say, I've sinned and I need forgiveness. We're reading this chapter here in Hosea chapter 2. And God has seen their unfaithfulness. He has dealt with their unfaithfulness. And he is saying he's going to punish them. And he just says it as clear as clear can be. My people are going after other lovers. My people have forgotten me. Listen, we can't forget God. Did you forget him yesterday? Did you forget him Friday? Have you ever been so busy that you've forgotten him? Have you ever been so wrapped up in something that you've forgotten him? Or have you ever been so caught up in something that you have forgotten him? He says here, they forgot me. Can you imagine running around from this sin to this sin to this sin to this sin and not even thinking about God? That's what's happened here to the people of God. So God, in his great mercy, calls out a prophet, Hosea, and says, Hosea, go tell them. But as you remember from chapter 1, it's not just go tell them. It's go marry a prostitute, his wife, Gomer. And so while he's telling them about all this unfaithfulness, Hosea is living now in a marriage where his wife is a prostitute. Every time Hosea turns around, she's out sold to another man. That's his wife. And God says, keep loving her. And everybody's like, why do you keep loving her? And the answer is, this is how God is to you guys. It is to highlight unfaithfulness. Listen, church, I know there are times for us to be encouraged and times for us to pat each other on the back and say, man, you're doing such a great job. And there are days and there is something that can encourage us every single day. But we must not be those people and we must not be that church that will never admit and never deal with and never look to our unfaithfulness. You have to be willing to say, I've not been the way I should be. I need to get back right. I need to put my hand to the plow. I need to lean into God's ways. 
Because God sees unfaithfulness. That's the first point. So what's God going to do about it? And if you don't read ahead right now, I, man, I wish that this was a small group. I wish we were in the basement like a Wednesday morning or Thursday morning like we get to, and we'll spend two hours and just see what y'all say. When I teach those two-hour Bible studies on Wednesday and Thursday morning, I usually just say, all right, here's what it says. What's it mean? And I let y'all try to throw out all these different answers before we really get into it. I would love to hear what y'all would say right now when we say, okay, what's God going to do about it? They are so unfaithful. He calls them that big W word. I mean, this is strong. This is not a slap on the hand. It's not going to be a slap on the hand. So what's God going to do about it? Number two, God redeems the unfaithful. Look at verses 14. Therefore, here's God's response. This is his response to, she went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Folks, if there's grace... There is grace. This is amazing grace we just sang, y'all. This, listen to me, when all of the carnal, worldly people out there try to act like they're Christians because they just know a few little things that the Bible teaches, but they don't know the heart of God, this is where they get it big time wrong. This is what they can't understand. God has just told them how unfaithful they are. He said it in the strongest words one could possibly use. There is no uh, getting around that. They have been that unfaithful. So what is our God and Father, maker of heaven and earth, our lover and savior and redeemer, the one of mercy, our righteous and holy God, what's he going to do about it? Here's what he says. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to draw her in like nobody possibly can. I'm going to take the bucket of love and pour it out to where she can't resist it. I'm going to love her so much she will never be unfaithful to me again. I'm going to do a work in her that will bring her in. I will allure her. I talked to you all two weeks ago about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Here we have God describing the new covenant again. The old covenant, which was never meant to save, never able to save, says this. God says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you don't obey me, I will curse you. That's the old covenant, and it never could save. It never had the ability to save. It was meant to show us what God was like and to show us how unfaithful we are. That's the old covenant. But the new covenant is this. God will change your heart and calls you to be a new living person that loves him. That's the new covenant. God will give you faith in his son Jesus, give you the power of his son Jesus, give you the holy righteousness of his son Jesus, so that you will now be a new person that loves God. You won't be this person that doesn't love God, trying to love God. You will be a new person that does love God. You will go from being a sinful person that tries to love God to being a holy and righteous person that does love God and now hates sin. The new covenant says God will do that. He's going to take this unfaithful, promiscuous people He's going to tell them all about that. Therefore, here's what I'm going to do. I will allure her. 
God, throughout the history of the world, is doing this amazing work of going to sinful people that do not believe in him, that do not want him, that reject him, and he is alluring them in. He is drawing them to himself by his grace, by his mercy, by his sovereign hand, and bringing them in to his love. It's awesome. Allure, if you're not getting it, is defined by this. Allure means the quality of being powerfully and mysteriously attractive and fascinating. Isn't that good? The quality of being powerfully and mysteriously attractive and fascinating. God says, that's what I'm going to do to them. I'm going to take them back out into the wilderness. Instead of beating them down one good time and teaching them how to listen. Because that doesn't work. They don't have the, listen to me, they don't have the ability to love God. We just sang, and all I have is Christ. And as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. These people are worshiping false gods with other nations being unfaithful W-H-O-R-E-S's to God. And God says, here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to start loving them in a way they can't resist. They're going to come to me. I'm going to speak tenderly to them. Verse 15 says, There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. If you haven't read the Bible or you don't understand this, the Valley of Achor is interesting. This comes from Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, you have this big sin of Achan. God told the people to go in and, and, and destroy everything and not keep anything. And Achan, listen to me, Achan keeps some of the wealthy, expensive things and lies about it. When the prophet comes to him and says, did you do this? What's happening? Why is God mad at us? Why is God against us? They say, tell us the truth. Achan said, yeah, I did. It's all over there in my tent. They go over there to Achan's tent. They look under the blanket. There's all of these expensive items, all these treasures, all this silver that he's hidden. He disobeyed God and kept it. And you know what God did? God punished them and killed Achan. And that place where that happened is called the Valley of Achor. You know what acor means? Trouble. It means we're in trouble. We've been unfaithful. It's like the Gene Snyder Speedway is 65 and, and you're in a hurry and you know you're not supposed to drive 80 or 85, but you've got to get there this time. So you're going 80, 85, and you're just hurrying, hurrying, can't be late, can't be late, can't be late. Got to get there, 80, 85, you're going, you're going, going. And all of a sudden there's blue lights. All of a sudden, and there's nothing you can say. I mean, you can try, but you know what I mean. And you just know, I'm in trouble. Speed limit 65, I'm going 85, I'm in trouble. There's a place throughout the history of Israel that they knew as the Valley of Achor. And it was the reminder of when Achan did that. Joshua chapter 7, you can look it up and read the whole story. It's when Achan did that and he lied to God and God who sees everything. God says, you're lying to me. You took it. Where is it? He says, it's in my tent. And they go there and it's right there because God sees everything. And so they named that place where they had to kill him because of that. They named that place the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble, which means we've been unfaithful, which means we're in trouble. When we're unfaithful, we're in trouble. Our lives are in trouble. We're in trouble with God. And God says, 
to these people who know they're in trouble. The prophet just preached at them that you are unfaithful. And God says, that place that you know as the Valley of Achor, I'm going to make it what? A door of hope. Y'all, people who don't follow Jesus don't get this. Our sins are not something that we're lying about, hiding and denying. I'm not trying to convince you how good I am so that you'll think that I'm like God. I'm trying to be honest with you that we all sin because in our sinfulness is where you meet the Savior that died for sins. Jesus died for our sins. If you don't sin or you don't sin much or you don't sin bad, then what need do you have for Jesus? None. If you don't think anything is sin, what need do you have for Jesus? None. If you think everybody's good, what need do we have for Jesus? None. But the very thing that gets us in trouble is the very thing that is a door of hope. When we say, I have sinned against God, Jesus speaks up and says, well, perfect. I died for sinners. I'm not lovable, I'm so sinful. Jesus says, I love sinners. This is the message of God. This is the message of the new covenant, tucked away here in the Old Testament from the minor prophet Hosea. But people hardly read the Old Testament anymore, and so they don't get this. The very thing that you think gets you in trouble is the very thing that God says, open that door of hope, buddy. Walk right in here to forgiveness, love, mercy, not based on how good you are, but based on how good God is. Man, it will cause you to fall flat, you'll be exhausted, you'll be burdened, you'll be trying to hide everything, you'll be trying to present yourself in a good light if all you know is be obedient, be obedient, be obedient. It doesn't work. Every one of us, from the best of y'all to the worst of y'all, struggle with faithfulness. We all do. And God says, that'll get you in trouble, that unfaithfulness. But once you realize you're in trouble, I'm going to open up the door of hope. I already sent my son Jesus to die for you. This is in Hosea. It's unbelievable. So you've got the valley of Achor. You've got the door of hope. And then it says, once that happens, look at the end of verse 15. She shall answer as in the days of her youth, as of the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember that? Do you remember 400 years of slavery in Egypt? Those people crying and groaning and, God, help us. God, remember your promises. That's what they said. God, remember your covenant. God, don't you remember that we're your people. You told us you loved us. You told us you would never leave us or forsake us. You told us you're going to take care of us. God, do something to us. And God said, I hear you. And I'm coming. And he set them free through the ten plagues, miraculous after miraculous, and sets them through the Red Sea. And they were saying, yes, he does love us. He does remember us. Now they went back to being unfaithful, but at that time they were like, yes, he is our Father, our Savior. And God says, I'm going to allure y'all. I'm going to bring you back, and you're going to love me. 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 And then in verse 16, look at this. He describes it differently. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, when I allure you and draw you to myself, you will call me my husband. And you will no longer call me Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from their land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Listen to this. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. 
Folks, God is going to do a work in them where righteousness makes sense. It's not that we're righteous. It's that we get the righteousness of God. That justice makes sense. God is just to punish sinners because he's also just to forgive sinners because he already punished Jesus for us. If you're here today and you're so confused about God's righteousness and God's justice, hear me on that. God is righteous. And you have to be righteous to get to heaven. You can't be righteous by obeying. You're disobedient at times. But you can have Jesus' righteousness when you believe in him. Is that just? Yes, it's just because God killed Jesus for your sins. God does punish sins. And so all sins are going to be punished either in judgment because you don't want forgiveness through Jesus or it was already punished in Jesus. So there are really two types of people in the world. Those who are clinging to God for forgiveness or those who are trying to convince God how good they are and therefore they don't need it. And God's saying here, I'm going to do all of that. And he ends it by saying, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. What? You're going to marry me in faithfulness? You're going to commit to me in marriage with faithfulness? God, don't you know how unfaithful I've been? And God says, oh, I know how unfaithful you've been. It grieved me deep to my heart. It upset me. It bothered me. But I'm going to allure you now. I'm going to love you in such a way now that my faithfulness will be the determining factor for our relationship. I'm going to put my faithfulness inside of you through the new birth, through the new creation, through the new heart, through the faith that's a gift. When God makes somebody a Christian and God saves them, he fills them with his righteousness. He fills them with their faithfulness so that they love God back. God redeems the unfaithful. It goes on and on. Verses 21 to 23 are a quote about how he's going to change their name from no mercy to mercy, from not my people to people. And he just says, you are my God. And we read that in our, in our scripture reading that Austin read, y'all. That's what Paul quotes in Romans 9. When God is describing to us in Romans 9 what his good sovereign salvation looks like, he quotes Hosea. Romans chapter 9 says, as God said in Hosea, these people don't belong to me, but I'm going to make them belong to me. And that's the end of chapter 2, that God redeems the unfaithful. And then lastly, God often uses marriage to teach us. Look what he does. Now he gets back away from the metaphor about the church, about the, the people of God. And chapter 3 is back to Hosea. Read it and we'll be finished. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. What God is preaching to his people through the prophet Hosea, God is showing to his people physically through the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer. I don't know about you, but 
my family lives in North Carolina, some are in Florida, some are in West Virginia. There's a lot of hurting in my family. There are a lot of people that are hurt. It's nearly every time I talk to my mom that she gets emotional talking about things. We've all been there to some extent. Life is hard. And it's complicated, right? There's no easy fix. You can't come to church and hope everything get better. And the preacher can't come to church and say, hey, do this and it'll be better. It's complicated and we know that. But I want you to hear today, and I've liked talking to my family about this, but we need to be able to root it all back to somewhere, somehow, somebody being unfaithful. Somebody being unfaithful. Maybe in marriage, maybe in family, maybe brother, sister, maybe mom to child, maybe, maybe this, maybe that, I don't know, but unfaithfulness. We've not been the way we ought to be. I've not been to you the way I ought to be. So often people will turn their back on their pastor or whatever, or their pastor on them because there's been some unfaithfulness. If you heard that I said something behind your back, you would, you would call that unfaithful and you would want to distance yourself from me probably. And what God is teaching us here is just how horrible unfaithfulness is just how problematic it is, just how far away these people have gotten from God because of their unfaithfulness. God is never unfaithful. He is always faithful. He loves us. He will not let us down. He is there for us. But the answer to us, our unfaithfulness, is hearing his great message of how much he loves us and how he sent Jesus to be our Savior. And when you hear that, if you hear it truthfully, you are to say, God, forgive me. You are to turn back to God and you are to say, God, I need mercy. You say you give mercy and I need that mercy, God. God, you say you give forgiveness and I need forgiveness. And he does. He is alluring you. And when you feel, listen to me, when you feel, man, I need to get right with God. Man, I need to turn back to him. Listen, that is the alluring that's the tender calling. That's the work of God in your heart saying, yes, he does love me. He loves unfaithful me. Don't ever try to tell yourself that he loves faithful you. He loves unfaithful you. And he'll draw you back. And he will produce in you faithfulness. And then he loves faithful you. Then he loves faithful you. Because faithful you is what he made out of unfaithful you. Do you understand? He loves us. But not because we're so faithful, but because in our unfaithfulness, that's what God is like. Jesus died for sinners. And when sinners come to him, it's because he's alluring them. May we trust his love. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for Hosea. Thank you so much for the heaviness, but yet the depth of love. Oh, Father, I pray that we would say, forgive us, have mercy on us. Oh, God, draw us to you. God, be patient with us. God, help us to admit that all of our valleys of trouble, all of our troubles should not be the end, but could be a door to hope. 
Father, thank you that Jesus is that door. God, lead us in response now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.